Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is the story of a railway man, a son of a hatter, a pub landlord, a hotel owner, a distinguished fullback, a disgraced footballer, the saviour of a football club. This is a man who is not remembered through a statue outside Old Trafford, but who, along with his St. Bernard dog, is responsible for the very existence of Manchester United. He is undoubtedly the most important signing the club ever made. This is the story of Harry Stafford, an Edwardian man who wore a white top hat and loved the spotlight, but who, having told everyone he was headed to Australia, boarded a boat to the USA in 1911. You're listening to United Through Time. Born in Crewe, Harry Stafford's name is little known, even though a little part of his story is a regular one in Manchester United folklore. Stafford joined Newton Heath as a player in 1896, and eight years later, he was suspended from football by the FA. In that short time, he had captained the club, managed the club, saved the club, and become a director. This is episode two of United Through Time, the new podcast delving into Manchester United's long and famous history. In this episode, we delve into the extraordinary life of Harry Stafford, a man dubbed by author Ian Gardner as Manchester United's first captain Marvel and who was known for his snappy dressing with brilliantly hued waistcoats and white hats. You'll hear from Ian throughout this podcast. His book on Stafford was published in September after over a decade of research and is a must-read once you've listened to this episode. You'll also hear from distinguished Manchester football historian and honorary research fellow at De Montfort University, Gary James. I am your host, Harry Robinson, and going in chronological order, United Through Time focuses on the most important individuals at the club since Manchester United was founded as Newton Heath in 1878. So, let's get started with a man who some argue is of a simply unmatched importance to Manchester United Football Club. The catalyst who sparks a religion... On the 24th of April 1909, a joyous Harry Stafford leaped into the air in celebration, hugging Louis Rocco who stood beside him in the main stand at the Crystal Palace football ground and anyone else he could find to embrace. The former fullback had never won a trophy himself with Manchester United, but he now watched on alongside 71,000 others as a club that he saved, the club that would not exist without his relentless work in the early part of that decade, the club he was forced to disassociate himself from for three years after an FA suspension, It was that club he watched, lifting the country's most prestigious trophy. But soon after that April day in London, Stafford vanished. 
He left behind him a seven-year-old son with his second wife Mary, and also an illegitimate daughter and her mother. And so, when Old Trafford, a brand new Archibald Leach-designed stadium that was the envy of the land, opened on February 19th, 1910, Harry Stafford was not there, the man who had made it all possible. Stafford reappeared on the census of 1911, staying at a lodging house on Bristol Road in the Edgebaston area of Birmingham. He described himself as an unemployed publican, a pub owner. Listed alongside him was a girl called Alice Oldham, though she was put down on the census as Alice Stafford. The census claims, falsely, that they had been married for five years. While Stafford disappeared briefly, Manchester United won a second league title in the 1910-11 season and in September 1911, the club granted Stafford £50 in recognition of everything he had done for them. The money was so that the now 42-year-old Stafford could emigrate to Australia to recover from an unspecified illness. He would never set foot on Australian land though, nor get anywhere close to the surrounding oceans. But all this was after the most important period in Manchester United's history shaped the club to be what it is today. And the man who had worked tirelessly to save it in 1901 and then fallen on his sword to save it again in 1904 was this man, Harry Stafford. He would die in 1940 in Canada, 3,000 miles from Old Trafford, but arguably as the most important signing the club had ever made. It was the Victorian age of gaslit streets with carts yanked along by trotting horses down cobbled streets that Harry Stafford was born into. It was the age of the self-made man, a time of opportunity for all, of urbanisation, industrialisation. It was Great Britain's great era. But for the majority, it could also be an era of vile conditions, a state that generally saw itself as having no duty to its citizens' health and well-being. It was an era of the rich getting richer until the workers finally made a stand, an era in which the political landscape shifted and working-class life mutated into something entirely different from before. It was into this world on a Monday that Harry Stafford was born. Monday the 29th of November 1869. In February 1970, he would be baptised at Wedgwood Methodist Chapel on Heath Street. 26 years later, he would be playing on the Newton Heath. But for now, it was a mixed up bringing for little Harry. His family were initially relatively comfortable. Crewe was a railway town. In 1837, when the railway line had first opened, Crewe was a tiny village with a population of only 200 people. By the time Harry was born though, 18,000 people lived around him. As Ian Gardiner, author of the brilliant biography on Harry Stafford, explains, the city revolved around the London North Western Railway Company. It was the age of steam, and the town of Crewe was dominated by the London and North West Railway. Uh, it was a company that provided its employees with homes and water, gas, hospital facilities and what have you but it also ruled a town with an almost military authority. Harry's father was George Stafford, a worker at the LNWR company. His mother was George's second wife, Eliza Brett. Her family had lived in Nantwich, very close to Crewe, for hundreds of years and had history in the area. This family had a few interesting tales with a couple of attempted suicides, including one successful one and some family battles with another of the aged families of the area. Harry's grandfather, Ralph Brett, had committed suicide in a puddle and then tried to leave a trail behind to blame the Bebbington family. Thomas Brett stabbed himself and made the same claim, but didn't manage to kill himself and so was sent to a mental institute instead. Harry would have been teased about these family issues as he grew older, but at a young age, things were pretty comfortable. The Staffords had a 15-year-old servant called Elizabeth Ankers and his father had two jobs. 
One was at the railway, but in Crewe, many of the workers looked to find a second method of employment because railway jobs were irregular and unstable. People could be laid off when business wasn't going well, which is why the trade union movement was growing at such a fast rate around this time and why eventually the Labour Party was founded about 20 years later. George Stafford's second job was as a hatter. In later life, Harry Stafford would regularly don a remarkable white top hat. Perhaps this style stemmed from his father. In November 1878, the year that Newton Heath Football Club was founded by members of the Lancashire and Yorkshire Railway Company slightly further north, Harry's family moved to Nantwich. Recession was bad and so people didn't want to buy hats, but it was in Nantwich where Harry became friends with Walter Cartwright, a boy of a slightly younger age, born in January 1871. This relationship would last a lifetime, or at least until Harry moved abroad in mysterious fashion. In 1884, Harry began work at the LNWR company, starting as a 14-year-old apprentice boilermaker. He made four shillings a week, working 54 hours. He followed in the footsteps of his father, George, as well as his brother. This was Victorian Britain. Conditions were terrible. Railway workers died at a rate of 500 a year. It was a dangerous place to work, you know, giving rise to gallows humour and work hard, play hard attitude among a lot of the workers. And uh, fatalities weren't uncommon, and there was even a department that made prosthetic limbs for injured personnel. Many of the workers at the LNWR joined the volunteer corps of the company, a group who could be called for active service in the army at any point. This included Stafford. In 1888, Newton Heath joined the Combination, a league trying to compete with the Football League. It failed. It was set up, though, by crew secretary James G. Hall. Crew had just reached the FA Cup semi-final, but were beaten by Preston North End at Everton's home ground, Anfield. Harry was more focused on athletics at this point. He ran in all the events from the 100 yards to the half mile, but was also a fantastic hurdler. His brother, Walter Stafford, was a sprinter. The pair were regular winners, and their name frequently appears in the local newspapers of the time. Nantwich Road and crew held the AAA Championships in 1888 with a number of American athletes in attendance. Harry had some success, but football would soon come calling his name. Football was in its formative years. Teams were playing with a 2-3-5 formation. Club managers were known as secretaries and the team was selected by a selection committee. Referees stood on the touchline to call the game and goalkeepers were known as custodians. Kits were uniforms. The two-handed throw-in had only just been introduced in 1882. The crossbar had only just become an idea and was actually just a cross tape. Captains only came about in 1886 and the goal nets didn't yet exist. Professionalism had only just been permitted by the Football Association. But in Crewe, professionalism was banned. Francis William Webb controlled Crewe like his kingdom. He was an engineer and superintendent with the LNWR company, as well as an alderman on councils and mayor on two occasions. He decreed that any man working at the crew works found to be playing professional football would be immediately fired. Given how little footballers were paid, there was no possibility of defying this order, and so the Crew Alexandra Club didn't become professional. Harry Stafford had been playing for the Crew Alexandra Hornets, the club's reserve side for a while, but made his first team debut on the 22nd of November 1890. He played at left-back in a Football Alliance game against Birmingham St George's in front of 2,000 people. His team lost 4-1. The next week, though, he celebrated his 21st birthday and did so with a great 6-1 win against Walsall Town Swifts. Crewe won the Cheshire Senior Cup two years later with a 3-1 win against Northwich Victoria. That was Stafford's first big taste of success. 
Not a huge amount would follow, to be honest. Stafford played a great defence as crew won another Cheshire Senior Cup a couple of years after that, according to local newspapers, but trophies isn't why Stafford is important. There was unrest at the LNWR company throughout this period and at the end of the 1891-92 season, the Football League was reformed. Crew were elected into the new Division 2 and in the expanded Division 1 entered Newton Heath, the Wednesday and Nottingham Forest. That summer of 1892, meanwhile, saw Stafford win a number of sprinting athletics championships, including at the Derby Harriers meet and Hinkley meet. For Crew Alexandra football team, though, things would never develop properly because of the railway company's insistence that professionalism was wrong. They became a hated team of amateurs. Much like Newton Heath, Stafford's next team, Crew were a team of brutes. They complained about everything while creating much to complain about for the opposition at the same time. All throughout the 1890s as well, the LNWR company were cutting jobs and hours. Five-day weeks became three-day, full salaries became bit part, and relatively comfortable lives like the ones that George Stafford and his family lived became ones filled with fear and trepidation. For Stafford, he had a fiancé living down in London called Francis Wood. His brother, Walter, also lived down south, and Stafford visited them both whenever crew travelled down to face Woolwich Arsenal. In one match against Arsenal, Stafford suffered a sprained ankle and probably stayed a couple of extra days with his future wife and brother. Importantly though, it wouldn't be the last injury on his ankles. It would be a recurring issue that ruled him out of various periods once he joined Newton Heath. The 1894-95 season was disastrous. Crew's enforced amateurism was catching up with them. The LNWR were cutting jobs again and there was a huge rail accident on the 23rd of December as 13 people were killed. Christmas Day wasn't much of a morale booster either. Crew were spanked 6-0 by Newcastle at St James's Park. Stafford's side then won none of their six games in January and finished the 36-game season having conceded 113 goals. That stat made them the worst football league side of all time and they finished bottom of the second division. They weren't yet voted out of the league for being so rubbish but the following season continued in a similar vein and they really were the hated team of the country. Violent and playing unattractive football, no one really felt any sympathy for Crew. but looking back, to be fair, it seems like they had to resort to such tactics because of their amateur status, which wasn't their choice, but the railway companies. At this time, remember, Manchester United was still Newton Heath. The boys who played in green and gold were hardly the model professional club. The pitch at Newton Heath was described in the history of the Lancashire FA as in places hard as flint, with ashes underneath that had become like iron, and in others thick with mud. The club's own description of it just after the turn of the century was little more than a clay pit, its surroundings a quagmire. But Newton Heath were a professional club, and remember little Walter Cartwright, the kid a little bit younger than Harry Stafford who looked up to him back in crew some years ago? Well, he was one of those getting knee-deep in clay mud every week playing for Newton Heath. About nine days into March of 1896, Harry Stafford opened his front door to a pair of moustached men. Less than two weeks later, Stafford had made his debut for the Newton Heath Club in a 1-0 friendly defeat to Sunderland. One of the men was Harry's best mate, Walter Cartwright, and the other was Alfred Harold Albert. Alf Albert was quite a character, a schemer, a wheeler, a dealer, the Dell boy of Newton Heath. He became the club's first full-time employee after they entered the Football League in 1892. Albert was a wily old fox whose near impossible job was to juggle Newton Heath's books after they became... uh, a limited company in 1892. He was uh, he was one of those guys who never operated as well as when his back was against the wall and uh, it was said that Alf could follow somebody into a revolving door and come out first. 
And uh, despite a couple of financial own goals, it was uh, it was Albert who kept Newtonheath alive during the 1890s. Albert, Stafford and Louis Rocker, three men of creativity and determination who kept Newtonheath and Manchester United going right up until 1950 between them, before they passed that baton on. Albert was the first, then Stafford and then Rocker. Albert often received court orders in the post. These were blue pieces of paper telling Newton East to pay for one thing or another, yet somehow he once used this blue piece of paper to his advantage, and it's a demonstration of the kind of character he was. He had heard a player with a local club hadn't been paid for a few weeks. It was quite possible, according to Ian Gardiner, it was a goalkeeper at Ardwick, later renamed Manchester City. Albert asked this keeper if he fancied joining Newton Heath. He then gave the player the blue court order and told him to wave it in front of the face of his club secretary at Ardwick, demanding a transfer or he'd sue him for the unpaid wages. The hope was that the other club secretary would be so fearful, even just by seeing the blue sheet, that he'd allow the transfer. Incredibly, it worked and the keeper, who may be William Douglas, made his debut for Newton Heath the next weekend and also got paid his owed wages by the old club. It was a trick that summed up Albert and the kind of tactic that Louis Rocker would employ many years later, wheeling and dealing their way to success. Anyway, it was this Alf Albert who helped bring Stafford to Newton Heath. He was a club secretary. Alongside him was Walter Cartwright. Walter Cartwright was a friend of Varys from childhood. They were teammates at crew. They just stood as uh, each other's best man at their respective weddings and were godfathers to each other's children. Cartwright named his son after Harry and uh, looked on him as the brother he never had. Walter was definitely instrumental in getting Alf Albert to sign uh, Stafford in 1896. Quite what Cartwright, Stafford and Albert spoke about can't be known, but the headline of the Manchester Courier read, A new player for Newton Heath, and below that said, Harry Stafford of the Crew Alexandra team has been transferred to the Newton Heath club. There wasn't any kind of huge excitement or anticipation for this defender moving about 40 miles north to join the Heathens. Stafford had gone from the amateur railway side of Crewe to the professional but messy ex-railway team of Manchester. He made his league debut for Albert's side on the 3rd of April 1896 in a 4-0 home win against Darwin, playing at right-back. He appeared three or four more times that season. The last game of the campaign was a 2-0 defeat to Lincoln, but everyone agreed that Stafford was fitting in immediately. Newton East finished 6th in Division 2 of the Football League with an average attendance of 6,000. Stafford's first full season was more eventful, having arrived at the very back end of the 95-96 season. The summer of 1896 saw Newton East sign Caesar Augustus Llewellyn Jenkins from Woolwich Arsenal. Although his name was Caesar, it was he more than any other player of the era who could be most aptly compared to Brutus in his violent playing methods. Newton East were a side of little technical quality, with great interest in imposing themselves on their opposition. Oh, they were a physical outfit, all right. Yeah. They had uh, various players in the side at the time. Harry Stafford was was joined there by uh, Caesar Jenkins, who was uh, who was uh, another one known for uh, his uh, gladiatorial ways. Caesar Jenkins was the emperor of the psychopath-like footballers. Newton either way would have been one hell of an intimidating fixture. Here was a ground next to a plethora of factory chimneys spurting out fumes with innumerable poisonous gases. The ground was a clay pit and on it played a team of, as Ian Gardiner says, fucking psychopaths. But the whole side was playing in this fashion, not just Caesar Jenkins. And the 96-97 season saw Stafford grow to great popularity. After victories for Newton Heath, players and fans would go to Shudhill to celebrate together, which would always be lively on a Saturday evening in Manchester. It would have been particularly so when the Heathens came from behind to beat City 2-1 at Bank Street on Christmas Day. 
18,000 were watching and the game had to be stopped twice after the barriers around the pitch broke and people surged onto the playing surface. Stafford joined the fans in Shute after and they loved him. He enjoyed being recognised throughout Manchester. And it was in that season that Stafford could finally turn professional after many years of being stifled by the Crew Railway rules. For clarity, he was still working in Crew at the LNWR and so the rules of professionalism set by the dictator like Frank Webb still applied. But Webb was forced to change his ridiculous rule after one concerned official from the railway company asked why Crew's traffic receipts were down compared to other places. The reason was because there was no football league team. Crew had been voted out of the top division because no one liked them. Webb had to change his mind and so professionalism was allowed and on the 22nd of March 1897, 366 days after signing for Newton Heath, Stafford registered as a professional footballer for the first time in his career. Newton Heath finished second in Division 2 in Stafford's first full season and so went into the round-robin test matches that decided promotion and relegation back then. It was the top two Division 2 sides against the bottom two Division 1 sides. They couldn't manoeuvre their way through these games though and so stayed down. It was a huge season of promise in 1897. The second place finish was good, although ultimately meaningless, and the Heathens' only actual achievement was winning the Healy Cup final against City in a 5-3 win, not a major trophy. Stafford would soon be made captain and Newton Heath were now consistently good, but never quite good enough to earn promotion. They finished fourth for four seasons on the trot before the club's financial situation forced them to unload some key players. While things were better for Stafford on the pitch at Newton Heath, it wasn't always so positive off the pitch. The drinks and the atmosphere at Shudhill after games was great for him and so was the fame, but his fiancée Fanny Wood was coming home to crew. She'd contracted tuberculosis. The partners decided to get married in the little time that Miss Frances Annie Wood had left. Stafford's final night out before he became a married man was Christmas Day after the Hyde Road derby against City. On the 29th, Stafford was married at St Paul's Church in Crewe. They moved into a house together in Crewe and Stafford was in and out of the Newton East side, partly due to ankle problems but mainly due to his sick wife back in Crewe being his main concern. Newton East lifted the Lancashire Senior Cup that year but in the final at Goodison Park, Stafford was sat in the stands. He'd had a breakdown during a 2-2 draw against Lincoln. Fanny's health was deteriorating and it can't have been a happy time for him. It was a fourth place finish for Newton Heath again and a Lancashire Senior Cup victory, but nothing else, still no promotion. And on the 23rd of May, Fanny Wood died just five months after her and Harry had sealed their marriage. Harry was in mourning, but only until the LNWR's annual summer trip to the coast. This year, the railway men went to Flyde. Stafford saved a drowning boy while others watched on. He waded out to sea and brought him to the shore. He did so with the help of his dog, a St Bernard. Elsie Davies, daughter of soon-to-be United owner John Henry Davies, told the BBC about the event many years later. Harry Stafford said, oh, I would sell that dog for anything in the world. He saved my life at sea. There's a man drowning and I rushed in to save him. The man got very obstreperous and I had to knock him out hold him with one arm and whistle my dog from the shore, got hold of his collar and he brought us both in. He said otherwise I would have been drowned with the man. So I think the world of that dog. Stafford saw it as an epiphany. He stopped mourning over his recently passed away wife and started living. Over the next few years he really would live life to the full as a Jack the Lad charismatic footballer that everyone came to remember. He bought a white straw boater hat, he'd grown up in a hat shop remember, and to go with it was a multicoloured waistcoat. It was quite the outfit for a working class railway boilermaker. 
It didn't take long for Miss Fanny Wood to be replaced as Stafford's loved one. He'd already met a girl called Mary Evans. He'd frequented the Victoria Inn in Rill while on holiday there a couple of summers ago. The pub was owned by a man called Robert Evans, a man with a magnificent moustache, and as Ian Gardiner writes, a magnificent pair of daughters too. Harry Stafford spent the rest of his summer here, enjoying it with the younger of the two daughters, a brunette called Mary. Both the daughters worked at the pub, and by the end of the summer, Mary Evans was besotted with the widower, Harry Stafford. He wouldn't be a widower for long. In November 1898, Mary Evans was by Harry's side at the christening of Harry Cartwright. Walter Cartwright and his wife Sarah had named their son after Walter's childhood friend. On the 20th of May 1899, Harry Stafford was married to Mary Evans at St Paul's Church in Crewe. It was only 17 months since he'd married Fanny Wood in exactly the same spot. On the football side of things, Stafford played every game but one that season. Newton East finished fourth, three points off the promotion spots, but Stafford was training in Crewe, so he didn't have to travel to Manchester every day. He only saw his teammates on a match day. True professionalism had not yet engulfed the club. Although he was enjoying himself on the football pitch and playing regularly without injury, it wouldn't have been the most settled of times for Harry personally. He remained a member of the volunteer corps of the LNWR company who could be called for active service in the army at any time. And on the 10th of October 1899, the Second Boer War began. The British were defending their rule over the Boer and Southern African states. A number of footballers were called up to fight, not anywhere near the same numbers as for the First World War 16 years later, but it wasn't rare for a team to be left in the lurch. Joe Clark of Newton East was called upon, for example. Stafford would have had this on his mind every time an update came in the newspapers about the country's progress in the war. One particular update in the Athletic News is a testament to Harry Stafford's character. If all the men who are to fight under England's flag possess his pluck and nerve, then the war will not last long. Stafford would never get to show that pluck or nerve because on February the 10th, 1900, he became owner of the Bridge House Inn. It was a pub in Wrexham, the largest town in North Wales. There were probably two reasons for his sudden change from a railway boilermaker to a pub landlord. The first could have been the ongoing Boer War. He might not have wanted to fight in it. The second, and more important, was his new wife, Mary Evans. Mary would likely have had trouble settling down as a railwayman's wife, and uh, it would have been her idea that he sacked the boilermaking game. In 1900, Stafford became landlord of the Bridge House Inn in Wrexham. It was a pub owned by the Chester Brewery. He had nothing at all to do with John Henry Davis, and the two wouldn't meet until the following year. Quite why it was a pub in Wrexham, 60 miles from Newton Heath he chose isn't completely obvious. It was only 30 miles or so away from Crewe, to be fair, but it would mean a long slog up to play for his football team. On the 15th of February 1900, Harry Stafford clocked out of work at the Crewe Works for the final time, bringing a 40-year association of Stafford's working at the LNWR to an end. It also meant he stopped being a railway volunteer. There was a war on, after all. Wrexham was known as a good brewing town. It had good underground water, which meant good beer. Stafford missed Newton East's fixture against Small Heath on February the 17th, a 3-2 victory, as he travelled down to his new life. He rode along in a small cart that carried all his belongings as well as him, his wife, his new father-in-law and a couple of Welsh nieces. Also with him was a little Welsh terrier and an all-important huge St. Bernard dog. This was a dog that would shape Manchester United's future. Major, the St. Bernard dog. Stafford had a new wife, a new pub, a new job. He had the same football team though, and Newton Heath was starting to get into trouble. The official receive was brought in and debt collectors weren't sympathetic. 
Walter Cartwright held a testimonial game around this time. Fans and players raised money in buckets and it was a good collection. But Walter never saw the money because the bailiffs came in immediately and took it. One pound and six shillings was left for him. He bought a round for all his mates with it and was so skint after his own testimonial that he and Harry Stafford jibbed the train back to crew. The club were now paying players by splitting the gate receipts rather than paying a wage. Easter of 1900, just after Stafford's new pub venture began, saw Joe Cassidy sold to Manchester City for £250. It was one of a number of times that United would desperately flog a player to their rivals for cheap to save themselves financially. Cassidy, at the time, was the best centre-forward to have ever played in a Newton Heath shirt. The average attendance fell to 6,000 or so as Newton Heath finished fourth for a third consecutive year. City, meanwhile, were in the first division, with 16,000 watching every game. A grand bazaar was announced in 1901. As plans began, Alf Albert, the scheming fox of a club secretary, was furious. He hadn't been pleased with selling Cassidy to Manchester City and he was certainly not going to be in charge of a club who relied on a bazaar to stay afloat. He put in an immense effort into saving Newton Heath for the last couple of decades, but his time was up. He passed the baton on to Lincoln City's James West, who took over as secretary. Remember that secretary then is similar to what the manager is now, although with far less power. On February the 27th, 1901, a month after Queen Victoria had died and Edward had taken the throne, the famous grand fundraising bazaar of Newton Heath took place at St James's Hall on the Oxford Road. It was opened by Sir James Ferguson, MP. As explained in the Louis Rock episode of United Through Time, it was a fundamental failure. Newton Heath needed to raise £2,600 to avoid bankruptcy, and once all the costs of putting on the bazaar were totted up and the boys had had a few drinks to celebrate, they had only raised a couple of hundred quid. The possibility of the club folding should not be understated. To stop what is now a great institution of Manchester and of English football fading away into obscurity, some kind of saviour would be needed. They needed a miracle. The story of this saviour has been mashed up over the years. It wasn't explained in great detail in the Louis Rock episode because Rocker wasn't that involved with it, but Stafford was. The financial saviour was John Henry Davies, but this isn't a simple story. It's not as if he found out about Newton East's troubles and suddenly waded in and saved the club. It took far longer than that as the situation became more and more precarious. At the bazaar, Stafford's St Bernard Dog Major was one of the attractions of the show. He had a metal box tied to his collar and he went around collecting money around the bazaar and from the local pubs. Louis Rocker told the story in the last episode of how a crashing sound was heard and how a pair of green eyes stared at him through the darkness of the night as Major the Dog escaped. Quite how true that is, we can't say, but Ian Gardiner explains the rest of the story. It may seem strange to have had a Swiss mountain rescue dog collecting an event that was uh, on the theme of sunny lands. But uh, Harry Stafford's St Bernard definitely did a runner from St James's Hall on Oxford Street that night. Major was tethered to a table or something while uh, Harry and his teammates disappeared out on the lash. But the dog escaped and went out for a walk round town. On his walk around the Oxford Road and the nearby squares of urbanised Manchester, Major settled in on one place that smelt particularly good. Let's not forget. He was just a dog and probably just wanted whatever smelt so nice from a nearby restaurant. United Footlaws always decreed that the dog was found by the landlord of one of John Henry Davis's public houses, uh, a man by the name of John Thomas. And at the time, there was no landlord of any pub in Manchester with that name. But in St Anne's Place, just off St Anne's Square, stood Will's Restaurant. It was uh, popular with the Cotton Exchange set and boasted of having the finest oysters in Manchester. 
And it was here that Stafford St. Bernard uh, ingratiated himself with the manager, Mr. John Robert Thomas. John Henry Davis had offices next door but one to Wills, and he often dined there. Stafford was back in Wrexham worrying about his lost dog. Anyway, Davis adopted the runaway and took him home to Beach House, his plush padding elderly edge. But uh, the following night in the lost and found column of the Manchester Evening News, uh, an advert appeared. Lost lemon and white submerged dog, answers to Major, from St James's Hall, Saturday night about 11.30. Apply F.W. Palmer, 38 Gibbon Street, Manchester. The address was that of uh, the Newton Heath chairman, Fred Palmer, who, who ran the Star Inn on Gibbon Street in Ancourt. John Henry's wife, uh, Amy, spotted the advert in the paper and uh, Harry Stafford was summoned to Davis's place. Elsie Davies, daughter of John Henry, already loved Major. Everyone loved Major, whoever they were, and John Henry wanted to treat his daughter by giving her the dog as a present. She explained the story in an interview with the BBC some decades ago. We found the name out on the collar, and it said on the collar, My name is Major of Railway Street Crew. I am Harry Stafford's dog. Whose dog are you? And uh, that thought, we all thought that was a wonderful thing. It must belong to someone with a keen sense of humour. Anyway, my father sent for this Harry Stafford, and he came to the house. My father tried to strike a bargain with him. Would he sell him the dog? So uh, Harry Stafford said, oh, I would sell that dog for anything in the world. He saved my life at sea. J.H. Davies started to win Stafford round. He offered him the chance to manage one of his pubs. Stafford's pub in Wrexham had been a failed venture. There had been a huge problem with the beer in the northwest of England only a few months before. Certain breweries had been providing poisoned beer with arsenic in them and people were killed. Harry Stafford had been seen pouring barrels of beer away from his Wrexham pub and although it wasn't his fault, he could never regain his credibility in the town. So when Davies offered him the management of the Bridge Inn back in Manchester, it was hugely tempting. The keys were handed over to Stafford by J.H. Davies' right-hand man, J.J. Bone, on July the 19th, 1901. On the opening night of the pub, Harry Stafford was joined by Newtoneath fans, teammates and others to celebrate. Davies was only buttering Stafford up though. Still, Major the Dog belonged to Harry Stafford and still, Newtoneath were a club on a downward spiral towards non-existence. As Britain entered the year of 1902, things weren't looking good at all. January the 9th saw winding up order granted. An old director of the club, Mr Healy, had brought the order forward after being owed the £242 he had given the club previously. He'd waited a long time before doing so, but had no real option other than to do it in order to regain his money. The club's game against Middlesbrough was suspended because the official receiver had locked the gates of Newton East Bank Street ground. Stafford's immense efforts began here. The bazaar had been one thing, but now he went on to full charge alongside Walter Cartwright. He made huge appeals for help from anyone he knew. He received subscriptions at his new pub, The Bridge Inn, and took several donations. He went door to door all around Newton Heath, Clayton and Ancoats to raise money. The Manchester papers reported the following. Mainly through the efforts of Stafford, who had printed some hundreds of subscription lists, something like £380 has been subscribed this week. It wasn't enough though. It did mean they could afford to play Brighton, but they couldn't afford to stay overnight, so travelled down at four in the morning to the south coast, arrived completely knackered and were beaten 4-0. 
On the 23rd of January, the judge Reginald Brown issued what was seen as simply a stay of execution for Newton Heath. It appeared to be just a matter of time before it all came crashing down, but Stafford's efforts probably helped to convince people otherwise, and maybe even convinced Judge Brown to make the decision he did. It was Stafford, with the help of several other players, who fought hardest for the club's survival. Now, finally, almost a year on from the bazaar itself, this is where it's likely that Manchester United's most important ever transfer took place. As a hard-headed businessman, Davis knew how to press home his advantage, which means the most to you, your club, or your dog. He said, well, I adore my dog. And he said, I adore my team as well. Well, he said, what would you do, Mr Davis? He said, well, I would take it over completely furbish you with a brand new team and you would still be retained as captain and we'd uh, make the ground decent and everything would be made all right for you. Now, if I do that, will you let me have the dog? So Harry Stafford said, uh, well, under those circumstances, we'd make it a bargain. So the bargain was made Major the St. Bernard Dog was given to John Henry Davies by Harry Stafford at the brewery owner's massive Beach House Mansion in Manchester. In return, Davies would take ownership of the club. To make it clear who is in charge now and to get his foot in the door, Davies bought the club an inside right called James Higson from the Manchester Wednesday team. It was nothing major, but it was a note of intent. He realised that owning a football club would increase his reputation and status. It was his display of anthropocentrism. He was a clever businessman. When he gave Stafford control of the Bridge Inn in Ancoats, it was partly to win Stafford round, but also because he realised the benefit of a footballer being the man behind the bar. It was guaranteed customers. On the 15th of March 1902, the Manchester Papers wrote, Newton Heath officials have at length decided upon calling their supporters together and a public meeting will be held next Tuesday evening in the new Islington Hall. It was here that things began to move slightly more quickly. It was now 13 months since the bazaar and finally things had begun to look a little bit better. But at the start of the meeting, the situation was still looking ominous. The New Islington Hall was filled by men in cloth caps and mufflers hanging out over the balconies and talking. Supporters meeting would have been crowded at the time and uh, tobacco smoke filling the air and the grumbling of, of different voices. Chairman of the club, Fred Palmer, oversaw matters and it was doom and gloom. Palmer taught those in attendance through the finances of Newton Heath. It was hard not to be miserable upon hearing those. But Harry Stafford stepped up. He asked Palmer how much the club needed to be on a sound footing. The answer was £2,000. Stafford said he had five names who were willing to give £200 each and pay the money into the bank at once. You can imagine the reaction of hundreds of frustrated working class football fans. Stafford took to the stage to huge cheers. This was the city of Manchester. As Henry Hunt had been greeted at Peterloo in 1819, as other great orators of Cottonopolis, the working man city had been greeted when they demanded the vote, the free press, working rights. Stafford stood atop of the stage in Ancoats and received the adoring cheers of the crowd in front of him. The donors were to be Mr Davies, Mr Taylor, Mr Bone, Mr Jones and Mr Stafford himself. The meeting was to be adjourned until those men could show themselves and confirm it in person. Stafford was mobbed as he descended the platform. It wasn't instant this fix though. The club was not saved immediately. There were discussions and worries to be had, anxious moments when it all could have collapsed. One meeting to discuss the situation saw only one person turn up, for example. 
On the 9th of April, though, after some consternation, the Manchester Evening News reported that an amicable settlement had been found and announced that a new board would take over at the end of the season on the 18th of May. It was a bad year for Manchester's football teams because Newton East finished 15th in Division 2, their worst ever position in the table, and Manchester City were relegated. City still drew crowds of 17,000 on average though, Newton East were only being watched by around 4,000 a game. It was around this time that Harry Stafford brought Fred Bacon to the club. He was to become trainer. Bacon had been one of the finest amateur runners in the country, briefly holding the world record for the fastest mile by an amateur runner. It was one of Stafford's many small but vital contributions. A last-minute winner in a semi-final replay against Bolton in the Manchester Senior Cup secured a final against the newly relegated Manchester City. Stafford lifted the trophy. Walter Cartwright was man of the match. Fred Errant scored the winning goal. He was the club's longest-serving player at that point and it was his final game for Newton Heath. It was the end of an era, sort of. The era of Stafford, Cartwright and Errant. Two of them would continue to play, but something new was happening in Manchester. It was the end to the Newton Heath era. Manchester United, an iconic name. To find the origins of it, it's time to take things back a few months to Christmas of 1900. Newton Heath are in a woeful situation. Harry Stafford's pub in Wrexham is not going well. He's getting older. Stafford announced a benefit match for himself shortly after Christmas. It was to be played on Tuesday the 5th of March 1901 and the new Brighton Tower had agreed to play a full-strength side, a rare thing for a benefit match. It would happen just after the Newton Heath Bazaar. The Bazaar had been a failure, but this match was even worse. Just like the Bazaar, it had been built up to be something special. Stafford had organised for it to be lit up by candles pitch side in an amazing illuminated fixture. Now, this is Manchester, the city of workers, of Alan Turing, Emmeline Pankhurst, of Oasis, the Stone Roses, the Smiths, City, United. But this is also Manchester, the rainy city. Fifteen minutes into Stafford's amazing illuminated fixture at the Bank Street ground, the game was called off as the candles were put out by the rain and the wind. It was rearranged, at least. A mixed team of players from Newton East, Manchester City and a few other clubs would play together. This mixed team won 4-2. Billy Meredith and Joe Cassidy of Manchester City played alongside Stafford. They didn't play under the name of Newton Heath though, but instead this mishmash of players was called Manchester United. No one thought much of it. It did sound quite good though. On Thursday the 24th of April 1902, a year or so later, Newton Heath's name was changed to Manchester United. It would come into force for the next season. A vote was put to the fans between sticking with Newton Heath and changing to Manchester United and the obvious choice won. The club didn't play at Newton Heath anymore but also the chairman of the club, the new chairman of the club, was desperate for Manchester to be in the name. The Ardwick club had had great success and drawn in great crowds since becoming Manchester City. They represented the city of Manchester. Newton Heath only represented Newton Heath. And so it was Manchester United. Soon after, John Henry Davies would change the colours to red and white as well. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Davies had now taken over the club. It was a one-man show with him funding it all. Stafford, Bone and the others might have been the names given by Stafford when he promised £200 each at that meeting in Ancoats, but it's likely that Davies funded their share of the money. And he would fund everything else too. After the change in name, Harry Stafford and James West took charge of football matters and straight away went out shopping, bringing in several new players to don the brand new red jerseys. Stafford reverted to amateur status and some commentators have labelled this as like some noble act done for the sake of the club. But Harry had no choice because as a serving director, he wouldn't be allowed on the payroll. So after that, he got his wages slipped to him in a plain brown envelope. So Stafford was an amateur player, sometimes a captain as his role decreased inside, often manager and always director. He was, importantly, also the scout for the club and the man in charge of bringing players in. Charlie Roberts would become the first ever Manchester United player to represent England. He was brought in by Stafford in a game-changing transfer for Manchester's football scene, it was a sign that the new Reds in town meant business and could do business well. United chairman JJ Bentley was also football league chairman. It was a fact that often caused quite significant controversy. He travelled down with the Manchester City party in his role as football league boss as the Blues of Manchester went to play in the FA Cup final of 1903. Unbeknown to City, Bentley had arranged an appointment at the plush Holborn restaurant in London. He was meeting with Mr Joseph Bellows, the chairman of Grimsby Town. Grimsby had a fantastic central defender called Charlie Roberts. He was a sought-after man of English football. Everyone wanted him, including City. While Bentley and Bellows met in London, Harry Stafford was on the end of a telephone line with Charlie Roberts beside him. He had gone on what was called a fishing trip and managed to catch Roberts rather than a pike or a cod. The deal was done for £600. Stafford got the signature of Charlie Roberts and the following morning, on Cup final day, Stafford took Roberts to Manchester. While City were distracted by becoming the first Mancunian club to win the cup, United had pounced and it was a sign that things might be beginning to shift very slightly in Manchester. Later that day, Roberts made his debut in a 2-0 home win against Burton United. He was six foot, a mountainous man for the era and wore short shorts, much to the frustration of the Football Association. Everyone else at the time was wearing shorts down below their knees. Charlie Roberts was wearing the shorts that we see today. While City won that FA Cup, United drew crowds of 18,000 in 1904 in a campaign of promise. That attendance was less than a 1,000 fewer than at City. United were finally catching up. 
They finished one point short of promotion. City were still the bigger club, though. They had the better players, more fans, more success, better football. City sort of relaunched as Manchester City in 1894 and captured the mood and, and made a lot of claims to be, you know, Manchester, a new club for Manchester and, and, and so on. And then 10 years after that, they won the FA Cup, Manchester's first major success. So that had firmly planted City as a more popular club, the more successful club. And United had only reformed in 1902 as Manchester United, thanks to the efforts of, of, of Stafford, really. And it was only really in 1902 that United started to get the finance as well with Davis. Um, and, and so United started to develop, but, but United were a second division team and City were a first division team. At the back end of that season, the shift really began. City's success was a challenge to the establishment of clubs and the FA didn't like it. While this would eventually benefit Manchester United, it would bring the axe down on Harry Stafford. After City had won the FA Cup, the FA first started to investigate City straight after that. And it's really weird saying this, but back in sort of 1905, 1906, that sort of period, both Manchester clubs were viewed as being young upstarts who had no history, had just come from, from nowhere really, and were challenging the likes of Everton, and Aston Villa, and even Stoke, who were in some ways perceived as like the aristocracy of football. So when City won the Cup in 1904, you know, some of the FA were saying, how can we do that? We, you know, we bought success, if you like. Um, and they investigated, and they found some minor errors, but, but nothing significant in City's account. City were FA Cup champions and challenging for the league. But, as Gary James explained, no one from the establishment enjoyed their success. The FA didn't find as much at City as they'd hoped in that initial investigation. It began in May 1904, just after the Cup triumph, when City's financial director, George Madders, was introduced to Thomas Hindle, the FA's chief auditor, at the back of the Hyde Road Hotel in Manchester. Mainly, the FA could only find some slight irregularities in terms of paying the fathers of players, bribing them basically. Heavy punishment for what the FA did find would follow. United knew that, and partly because they had JJ Bentley, the Football League chairman, on their board. The FA were going to shift their focus to the other part of Manchester. Former Secretary James West was all too happy to hold his hands up. He was now settled in one of John Henry Davies's pubs. But that wasn't good enough for the FA, because West had left some time ago and was out of football for good, having been replaced at United by Ernest Magnell. The man the task fell to to save Manchester United was Harry Stafford. The FA needed more and Harry could provide that. And so, Stafford fell on his sword. He retired from football and relinquished his seat on the Manchester United board. He had to fall on his sword because if the FA really dug deeper into the club's finances, they would find a remarkable amount of wrongdoings. In return for his sacrifice, Stafford would be given the Imperial Hotel in Piccadilly, one of the Manchester Brewery's largest properties and right by the London Road Railway Station. More on that later. On the 21st of September, Stafford appeared in front of court. It was a matter about the contents of the gin in his pub. His appearance a fortnight later in front of the FA Consultative Committee would be much more life-changing though. He and James West attended that committee at the Grand Hotel in Manchester. It was chaired by Charles Clegg. Clegg is an interesting character, having played in the first ever international match between England and Scotland back in 1872. A Sheffield man, he became chairman and president of the Football Association and performed in both roles for both Sheffield Wednesday and Sheffield United while helping to found the latter club. During his reign in charge of the FA, he became known as the Napoleon of football. 
One story about Clegg is too funny to omit. He was once faced with a young player who had said some ungentlemanly remarks to a referee. Clegg asked the player what he had said to the referee, and the player replied, Well, I said, I've shit better referees. I see, said Clegg. All right, I'll tell you what to do. I'll give you a week to prove you can do just that, but if you can't, I'm afraid you'll have to pay a £1 fine. Despite that story, he was generally a fierce man in terms of investigations and punishments and wouldn't let United get away with anything. So it was this man who Stafford and West faced up to. They pleaded guilty to the mismanagement of finances, thus exonerating Davies, Bone, Taylor and Jones who must have been oblivious to the wrongdoings. Of course, it's very unlikely that this was actually true. On December the 12th, a couple of months later, the FA Special Commission met in London to decide on the appropriate punishment for Stafford and West. Both were suspended from football until May the 1st, 1907, meaning almost a three-year ban. Stafford, though, was praised in the Manchester newspapers the next day, rather than vilified. On the 10th, Stafford had gone to watch United beat Gainsborough Trinity 3-1 at Bank Street. It was the final time he'd be allowed to watch a team he had saved for a couple of years. Now, this was the end of investigations into United, for now at least. City's time in the spotlight wasn't over though. The Blues were FA Cup champions and were storming towards the title. They were northern and working class. They were definitely out to get these new northern working class clubs that were challenging the traditions of football. A year after that investigation, things with City got more heated. They travelled down to one of the establishment clubs, Aston Villa, for what became a hugely controversial game. The game was full of all sorts of incidents. Um, Sandy Turnbull was in the middle of it all. who became a big star at United as well. Um, Sandy Turnbull was absolutely loved by City fans. And on the pitch, he got, got into a bit of a, a fight with uh, a guy called Alex Leake, who was the Aston Villa captain and was, was England captain as well, I think. But he was you know, a respected footballer, where Sandy Turnbull was seen as some sort of rough, Northern type football. I mean, he wasn't he wasn't from Manchester, but you know he was seen that way. And so he got into this sort of tangle with him and, and stuff. And Sandy Turnbull stuck two fingers up at um, Alex Lee, which was highly controversial, right? You know, and and newspapers really criticised him for this. Um, but when the game finished, as the players had gone off the pitch, Turnbull was dragged into the Aston Villa dressing room. Nobody could get in. Like five minutes later, he's thrown out with cuts and bruises. The, the Villa players had attacked him, basically. Leek claimed after the game that City's Billy Meredith had offered him a bribe of £10 for Villa to throw the match. City needed a win to secure the title on the final day of the season. There was no proof of this bribe, and it was one man's word against another. Meredith was football's first bona fide superstar. He was loved, but not by the FA necessarily. A Welsh winger, Meredith was one of the best players the game had ever seen and would go on to play well into his 40s. He's a remarkable man. Alec Leake is also remarkable. He was England captain. The FA loved him. In August of 1905, a few months after the game, Sandy Turnbull was suspended for four weeks for being beaten up by the Aston Villa players in a mind-blowing decision. And at the same time, Meredith, being the Beckham of his time in terms of fame, was suspended until April 1906. It was a shock to the world of football. On that same day, Meredith received a letter from City. It came from Tom Maley, the City secretary. It gave the club's apologies to Meredith, but was basically a shush letter, telling Meredith to not say a single word of any sort to no press man, not anyone. This infuriated Meredith, and City's response to his suspension would eventually be the cause of their own downfall. 
Meredith was a character and a half and wouldn't take such treatment lying down. He thought he was owed wages. He thought he was owed support. In February 1906, not too long before Meredith was to be free to play again, Maylie sent a letter to the FA reporting Meredith for hanging around City's Hyde Road ground and attending games in spite of his ban. Maylie had little choice. The FA would reinvestigate City if they thought they were helping Meredith evade his ban, and so a special commission was announced to investigate Meredith. He was, again, furious. He now accepted the bribery charge, whether it was true or not, and claimed it was Maylie's idea. If he was going down, Maylie and City were going down with him. A great figure, but if, if you trust him, he'd bring everybody down if you like. It. You know, he, he, he was good at that. He then told the FA every single illegal payment he'd ever received from City and the floodgates opened. On April the 12th, 1906, Meredith appeared in front of an FA special commission and with every furious word he spat out at the panel in front of him, he was taking City apart. Charles Clegg systematically went through City using Meredith's accusations and brought the club to its knees. Even before City's punishment was announced, Meredith then began to arrange his own transfer from blue to red. He knew Harry Stafford well, having played against him frequently, and back then, United and City were genuinely local to each other. It wasn't City in East Manchester at the Etihad and United in Trafford. It was City and United, about a 10-minute drive away from each other in East Manchester. The players spent time together. They lived next to each other. Meredith played for United in Harry Stafford's benefit match back in 1902, remember? And so, Meredith visited the Imperial Hotel to see Harry Stafford. This was superstar Billy Meredith, a man of huge character, but a non-drinker, a teetotaler. So his visit to a bar wasn't just an everyday event, and it's here where it's possible that the fix began, where Harry Stafford became intermediary to one of football's biggest transfers at the time. Meredith was placed on the transfer list at City. Many shareholders were angry at the City directors who took this decision, and so a meeting took place on the 15th of May. It was more of a debate than a meeting and so another one was scheduled for the following Monday. But by that Monday, Meredith had signed for Manchester United. The Manchester Guardian reported that the transfer has been fixed at £500. Meredith wasn't quite content with that as he didn't want any club to benefit from the transfer and so managed to arrange for himself to be paid the transfer fee rather than City. City were just relieved to get rid of him. The money likely came from John Henry Davies. At the end of the month, on May 31st, 1906, the FA Commission reported on their investigation into City. The headline in the papers went along the lines of Football Sensation, and the details were sensational. City, as with almost every other Northern club, was paying over the maximum wage for players. You know, the maximum wage was limited at four quid, and people like Meredith were earning about six pounds. And that was true at City, it was true at Middlesbrough, that was another team that was caught out. It was true at United and it was probably true at Liverpool. The Northern players couldn't afford not to be paid for their efforts or to be paid only £4. But with City, the FA could make an example. There was evidence of money around the club being moved into personal accounts. In his book on Harry Stafford, Ian Gardiner writes, the football world took a sharp intake of breath. It really did. It ended up that City received the biggest punishment um, that I'd ever appeared in, in football. But, you know, basically, 17 players were, were banned from playing for the club. The manager was suspended initially for life, but eventually, you know, he was, he, he was allowed to manage again later, but, but initially suspended for life. Former chairman Waltham Forrest had to step down. The financial director, George Madders, was banned for life. Two board members were banned until the end of April, and all other directors ordered to resign. 
Mr. Hindle, the accountant who the rest of the city boards had been trying to circumvent with their schemes, was ordered to stay and sort things out. 17 players, as Gary said, were cited as receiving illegal payments and all were fined and suspended until New Year's Day 1907. This included Meredith and Turnbull. That was it. City crippled by the FA. They would survive and other clubs would help out by selling them players or giving them players. They had been the example that the FA was searching for, a deterrent. And with that, the balance of power in Manchester's football scene shifted. Manchester United, that thanks to the investment from Davis, the um, management of Ernest Mangnall and obviously people like Stafford, United were their strongest ever position. Now on Piccadilly in Manchester, there's a Starbucks, a Sainsbury's, and an £81 a night Malmaison Hotel. On that same site, without the Starbucks, without the Sainsbury's, back in 1904, stood the Imperial Hotel. Harry Stafford's journey with this hotel started in 1904 after his suspension by the FA. John Henry Davies, United owner, gave him the hotel to manage. With him would have been his second wife Mary, and also on his mind would be his illegitimate child, who Mary did not know about. On the last day of 1904, the Imperial would have been packed after a 6-1 win for United against Burslem, where Jack Allen scored a hat-trick. It wasn't the last time that players, fans and journalists would convene in Harry's hotel to celebrate after a game or trade gossip. The Imperial, or Imp as it was sometimes known, became a host of football drinkers, United, City, whoever. And Harry became a host of quite a successful hotel. He was doing well under his management partly down to the fact that he was the manager and partly due to the recent success of Manchester United. He had commissioned a huge canvas painting of himself in the United kit and it was hung on the front of the hotel. He was hardly a modest man. Before Billy Meredith's saga had concluded and he joined United that we just spoke about, United had had their own victory on the pitch. The Reds were finally flourishing and they secured promotion with a 3-1 victory against Leeds City at Elland Road. They finished the campaign with a fantastic game against Burton United. It was a huge atmosphere before the game, a long-awaited celebration. The Manchester Courier reported, The Manchester United team were welcomed with triumphant strains by a band when they entered the Clayton Field. A shout went up from some 15,000 throats which would have drowned the notes of any band and the sharp crack of fireworks was mixed with the roaring of voices. Red and white fire balloons ascended from the pavilion, the upper story of which was decorated with flowers and flags. Burton refused to come out until the noise level had dropped somewhat, until the celebrations had died down a little bit. They did so eventually and were met by a buoyant United team who tore them apart. United won 6-0 in a game with a brief snowstorm. Yes, a snowstorm in April. When the end came, there was a wild rush into the ground from all sides. The players made an effort to escape what they knew was coming, but they were intercepted and borne with wild, fantastic triumph to the dressing room. Some of the men were tossed about for several minutes, the last day of 11 years in the second division. So, the signing of Meredith that came after this promotion to the first division would have only added to the joy of the Manchester United fans. They remained Manchester's second biggest club, but things were changing. Interestingly, this is a time when fans would support City and United, going to Hyde Road one week to watch the Blues and Bank Street the next weekend to watch the Reds. And so when Meredith was banned alongside 16 other players, there was an appetite within the city of Manchester, including City fans, to see Meredith continue playing in the local area. And that meant United. But City fans and the general Manchester public wanted certainly Meredith, certainly Turnbull, uh, a couple of other, other players, Herbert Burgess and so on, 
they wanted him to stay in Manchester. But it wasn't just Meredith who would move across the city. The FA ruled that City could negotiate transfers for their banned players from December the 1st to raise some money. That happened to be the day of the Manchester derby at Hyde Road. 40,000 watched on as United were pummeled 3-0. But Ernest Magdal's side were the real winners that day. They signed Sandy Turnbull, Herbert Burgess and Jimmy Bannister after the game. It's quite possible the deals were negotiated before, just like Meredith, but when other clubs found out, they were furious. United had snatched in before any others could compete. The Reds' bad form in that time continued. They only won one game in the whole of December. But on January 1st, 1907, the bands against Turnbull, Meredith, Bannister and Burgess were lifted and all four made their debuts for United at Bank Street in knee-deep mud on New Year's Day in a 1-0 win against Aston Villa. Stafford may have been involved in bringing the City boys to United, or at least his hotel may have been the venue for negotiations over a pint or a gin. But he himself was still suspended. His Imperial Hotel had another purpose though. It could be used to sign players, trade gossip and more. Luton chairman Ernest Gibbs later recalled of Stafford's hotel that It used to be said that one could sign a complete professional team in the small hours of May Day. But for Meredith, now of United and still of great fame, the Imperial Hotel was the place in which the Players' Union, the predecessor to the Professional Footballers' Association, could be restarted. The Welsh winger had tried to begin such an organisation before and failed. The death of Thomas Blackstock, a United player, while in action for the Reds may have been a trigger. Stafford had actually signed Blackstock and brought him down from Scotland to Manchester. And so when he dropped dead in the middle of the pitch, it would have been a painful personal moment for Harry Stafford. As Ian Gardiner writes so poignantly, Stafford had taken Thomas away from his mother to sign for Manchester United and brought him back dead in a box. Meredith wanted to revive the players' union and Blackstock's death encouraged this. 23-year-old Leeds player David Wilson had also died early in the season, leaving a wife and a five-month-old baby with nothing to their name. More on the players' union in a second. But for Stafford, his ban ended on May the 1st as United secured their highest ever finish in the Football League, 8th in the 1st Division. They were only nine points behind champions Newcastle. Their average attendance was now up to over 20,000, slightly fewer than City, but the two numbers were much closer than ever before. There was no space for Stafford to return to United though. He'd fallen on his sword for them, he'd sacrificed himself for them, but he couldn't return to the club. There was already talk of a super stadium designed by Archibald Leach. The Manchester Brewery had somewhat suspiciously bought some land at Old Trafford as far back as 1904. The team that was behind United's rise was aided greatly by the signings from across the city. But in goal was Harry Modger, who had gone over 10 hours without conceding at one point. He was brought in by Stafford from Southampton. Stafford also signed Alex Downey from Swindon, secured Charlie Roberts' signature from Grimsby and helped bring in Duckworth and Bell. He helped to fix Meredith and his hotel might have accommodated the transfers of Turnbull, Burgess and Bannister. Stafford, Louis Rocker and Ernest Magnell had all played their part in forming the first great Manchester United side which started the next season, the 1907-08 campaign. In the first 13 matches, United won 12 and scored 48 goals. They beat Villa 4-1, Liverpool 4-0, Chelsea 4-1, Forest 4-0, Newcastle 6-1 and Blackburn 5-1. Turnbull and Meredith were racking up the goals and loving life at United together. Meredith would host his teammates on matchday evenings at his house in Longsight and they spent a huge amount of time together. In November of that season, 1907, Stafford was charged with allowing drunkenness on his property. The day of the charge was regarding the 23rd of November. That was the day that Sandy Turnbull had scored four goals in a 4-0 win against Arsenal at home. It wasn't that surprising then. But on December the 1st, things were far more sober and more serious. Harry Stafford hosted the first ever meeting of the Association Football Players Union. 
Its formation was at the Imperial Hotel. Meredith chaired the meeting and players from United, City, Notts County, Sheffield United, Spurs, Bradford Park Avenue, West Brom, Preston and Newcastle were there. They had a three-hour discussion and decided to form the union. John Henry Davies was appointed union president. By March, the union had the consent of the FA. In the meantime, United were rampant in the league and after beating Sunderland 3-0 at Bank Street, they were seven points clear with two games in hand. But they lost 1-0 to Arsenal and then 7-4 to Liverpool in a ridiculous match in which they had been 4-0 down at half-time. They eventually did win the title by way of the Wednesday losing to Bolton. United themselves had failed to beat Notts County. Had they done so, they could have won with glory, but instead it took another result to give Manchester United their first title. They tailed off towards the end of the season, losing to Forest and Villa and drawing to Bolton and City. They hadn't won in five games when they finally managed to beat Preston North End 2-1, and in doing so, they set a record points total and won the league. Despite that woeful end to the season, they broke records and finished nine points clear of second place. Everyone headed to the Imperial Hotel to celebrate. Turnbull had scored 25 goals in 26 games and Meredith had missed only one league game at the age of 35. When the medals were handed out in a celebratory dinner at John Henry Davies' house a couple of months later, Harry Stafford was given one. It was a gesture of thanks. Stafford even returned very briefly as a player a couple of months later. In 1908, while United played Chelsea in the Charity Shield at Stamford Bridge, Stafford and Walter Cartwright lined up for Manchester United again. It was a charity match to help those who had suffered in the recent Wigan disaster where 75 men had died in a huge explosion at the Maypole Colliery. The Newton Heath boys of days gone by were back and played against the current United reserves. Stafford was captain as his team won 4-3. The Colliers came out in support of those who died in Wigan and marched from Piccadilly all the way to Bank Street raising money. Stafford and his old mates went for a drink at the Imperial. The next season was good for United, but not so much for the people of Manchester, as unemployment rose massively. Stafford and his wife handed out meals to those struggling. They provided dinner and entertainment with a gramophone in their hotel, and the Manchester Courier hailed the generous act as an example for all other hotel proprietors. Old Trafford, this is the of Will you please welcome Manchester United! been four years since there had been serious questions about the purchase of land by the Manchester Brewery, but at Yuletide 1908, it was announced that a stadium at Old Trafford would be built for Manchester United. Neither money nor care is to be spared in ensuring the comfort of players, officials and spectators. Things just got better and better. League champions, a new stadium, some of the best players in the country and the FA Cup would top it all off. The 1909 Cup Final was to be held at Crystal Palace. Not the current Crystal Palace of Selhurst Park, but the genuine, the real Crystal Palace at the football ground in the area. Rocker's brigade travelled down. Louis Rocker was in his red and white striped pyjamas. Stafford was with him among the United officials who met at the London Road station, just next to his own Imperial Hotel, on the Friday morning. United beat Bristol City to win the FA Cup. They weren't the first team from Manchester to do so. They were five years too late behind their rivals, but it was a triumphant day. 
They returned to huge support in Manchester. They'd actually had huge support in London too. For some reason, probably because of Meredith in part and also because of United's league success, most Londoners cheered on the Reds. Other Southerners lent their support to Bristol City, but the London locals became United fans for the day. As Ian Gardiner says, Edwardian Cockney Reds. Stafford was there in the main stand, hugging Louis Rocker and anyone else he could find as the FA Cup trophy wore a scarlet ribbon. He watched Manchester United win the FA Cup. It was the club he had saved from the abyss, who he had sacrificed himself for. And then he disappeared. Stafford vanished and left behind his wife Mary, who was his second wife. He had a seven-year-old son and left him too. Harry Stafford Jr. was sent to live with Walter and Emma Stafford in Plumstead, London. On February the 19th, 1910, Old Trafford opened its doors for the very first time, and Harry Stafford was not there. He was the man who had made it happen, but quite where he was, was unknown. In 1911, he finally popped up again because it was the year of that decade's census. He had eloped. With him was 37-year-old Ancoats girl Alice Oldham. She had been a barmaid at the Bridge Inn in Ancoats when Stafford had run it, and he had conveniently taken her to the Imperial Hotel too. On the census, she was now called Alice Stafford, and they falsely claimed they'd been married for five years. Mary Stafford was left none the wiser, just like before when she had had no idea that Harry had an illegitimate daughter with Harriet Sturgis. Harry Stafford and Alice Oldham were staying at a lodging house on Bristol Road in Edgebaston, Birmingham. They were accompanied by eight-year-old niece, Irene Oldham. In the meantime, Manchester United won a second league title in the 1910-11 season. They'd won a third major trophy in four seasons, and yet still... They couldn't attract as many people to Old Trafford as Manchester City could to their ground, and yet still, they weren't set for long-term success. Things would soon tail off. Magnell would become City manager, and United wouldn't win another trophy until the 1936 Division 2 title. In September 1911, United won the Charity Shield in an 8-4 victory against Swindon Town. Harold House and Ernest Magnell and Louis Rocker signing scored six. Six days before that result, Harry Stafford was granted £50 in recognition of everything he had done for the club. The money was so that the now 42-year-old Stafford could emigrate to Australia to recover from an unspecified illness. I never saw Australia. Him and uh, Alice sailed to America where, born and bred to be a railway man, he, he resumed his former career as a locomotive boilermaker. Davies would have been keen to give Stafford the money, not necessarily out of thanks. The pair were quite different characters, well very different in fact, and Stafford returning to the club as a figure would only make the FA more inclined to launch another investigation. If the so-called serious illness wasn't mysterious enough, Stafford never set foot in Australia, as he said he would. On the 18th of October 1911, he and Alice Oldham boarded the ship, the Devonian, from Liverpool. He had bought tickets at a cost of £19 and 10 shillings each, and the Devonian was going to Boston, Massachusetts. He laid false trails the whole journey, first by telling United he was going to Australia and then when he filled out the forms on the boat, where he wrote that he was going to Fall River rather than Boston. The journey took five days and 32-year-old Tom Oldham, Alice's younger brother, met them at the dock. He was a railway worker at the New York Central Railroad. Harry Stafford wrote a letter to Jimmy Catton, the editor of the Athletic News, soon after arriving in America and suggested he was going to become the football coach at Harvard University. But that was a lie, or maybe it was just something that never materialised. Instead, Harry began working for the New York Central Railroad, just like Alice's brother Tom. Openings had arisen because of big strikes in which a number of workers ended up being sacked. Harry spent Christmas of 1911 with Alice and Tom in New York State. 
In mid-1912, Stafford became coach of a football team in Schenectady, a city in New York State that was a blossoming area of the time. It was a new football team organised by the Sons of St. George, English men and some Americans who wanted to learn the game. They aimed to join the New York Central League. The Schenectady Gazette at the time reported that Mr. Stafford is undoubtedly the best all-around association player in the country. They also praised his cricketing and wrestling ability. Quite where that came from is unknown. It was the start of a common trend where people reported on Stafford as a hero with either no or false evidence. Stafford claimed he'd won medals with players he hadn't, played with players he hadn't. The team weren't admitted to the New York Central League and so it folded before it even began. At one point in America, Stafford tried to play again but couldn't get into the local locomotive team and so he refereed instead. He made a couple of greatly controversial decisions in favour of the local team, unsurprisingly. He also began running again, lying about his previous success in England. At the age of 43, he finished unplaced at a meet in Hilton. Back in England, meanwhile, the war had begun. At United, the backline of Duckworth, Roberts, Bell had all left in varying circumstances. Harold House had been sold to Chelsea. The Reds were tailing off. Stafford became groundsman at the local club while Sandy Turnbull was killed at Arras after being captured by the Germans. His body was never found. Stafford ended up moving to Montreal as openings came up due to the war effort. The Montreal Locomotive Works needed a locomotive inspector. It was a promotion of sorts and he and Alice left in September 1917. He was approaching his 50s and Alice's brother Tom soon joined them with his family in Montreal. Things continued steadily. For United, things were good and bad. Meredith rejoined City, where Ernest Magnol now was as well. United did pull in a record attendance and made record profits. In 1922, Stafford decided to write to John Henry Davies, United owner, about his life and about United. He said it was a shame to hear of the club's demise and again mentioned the serious illness which had been his reason for leaving. The serious illness never seems to have actually existed. And according to his letter, Stafford bought a grand hotel where there were pitches for football, cricket, baseball and more, tennis courts, a dog racing track. This idea had just been accepted by everyone. But Ian Gardner's detailed and lengthy research into Stafford, which produced his fantastic book on the United Man, found that the hotel never existed. It was a typical Stafford lie. Like Louis Rocker, Stafford had a tendency to over-exaggerate things. It's a lie, the hotel, that has been mentioned in a huge number of books written by people of great authority. Yet it doesn't appear to be true at all. In June of 1903, Alice Oldham died and Harry was heartbroken. But not that much because, although he was still married to Mary Stafford, who was back in England, he married for a third time. The woman's name was Margaret Hedge. He'd barely put Alice to rest before the pair were brought together in October. Margaret was 18 years younger than Harry. At this time, Harry's family back home was flourishing in parts. His illegitimate daughter, Eva, had married and had a couple of kids. His legitimate son had had two kids. In 1924, Billy Meredith had retired after playing almost 1,600 matches, and in 1927, John Henry Davies died. In 1929, with the figures of his past dying or retiring back home, Stafford was hit hard by the Great Depression after the Wall Street crash in October. He almost certainly lost his job. It wasn't until the Second World War began that he got back into regular employment, and by then his health was in decline. John Henry Davies' wife, Amy, died in the 30s, and so did Ernest Magnell, Fred Errants and Charles Clegg. At United, though, Louis Rocker, the man who stepped into Stafford's boots to become scout, fixer and all-round United man, had just signed Johnny Kerry and Stan Pearson. Stafford was out of work until 1939, but by then it was too late. He was too old. He moved back in with Margaret's father, and on Thursday the 24th of October 1940, Harry Stafford passed away. Two days later, he was laid to rest at St Mark's.
He died without an inkling of the magnitude of the legacy left in Manchester. Stafford was a womanizer, a drinker and likely a gambler. He married only 17 months after his first wife died, vanished while still married to his second wife, and it took him only three months to marry after his long-term partner died in the USA. He was hardly a perfect man. But what he was is the man who saved Manchester United. Newton Heath was set to disappear into the abyss had Harry Stafford not tried like he did. Yes, he was helped by the somewhat fortunate meeting with rich brewer John Henry Davies, but that wasn't it. It took a year from meeting Davies for the portly, rich-moustached man to put his money into United. In that time, Stafford knocked on door after door around Ancoats, Clayton and Manchester. He took subscriptions, let his dog loose with a collecting box, told anyone he could of United's troubles. Today outside Old Trafford, tourists photographed the effigies of Sir Matt, Sir Alex and the United Trinity. All the United greats who who helped make the football club the giant of today. Just over 3,000 miles away, the remains of Harry Stafford, the catalyst who sparked a religion, they lie neglected in an unmarked grave. In Greek mythology, there is a bird that lives for up to 100 years. It has a fiery plumage. And near the end of its life, it settles into a nest of twigs which then burns ferociously, turning the nest and the bird into ashes. The bird is a phoenix, and from those ashes a fledgling phoenix rises, renewed and reborn. In the history of this football club, a group of railmen founded Newton Heath. That club nestled down, ready to burn. And from those ashes, when it did burn, the Red Devils rose, renewed and reborn, and all because of Harry Stafford. I hope you've enjoyed the second episode of United Through Time. Next up is a man who you have heard so much about in both of these first two episodes, John Henry Davies, the man whose money saved the club in combination with Harry Stafford's efforts, the man who changed the name, changed the colours and took the club to Old Trafford. This podcast was written, produced and hosted by me, Harry Robinson. A huge thank you to my guests, Ian Gardiner and Gary James. This podcast literally would have told a completely different story if it were not for the amazing work of Ian Gardiner in his fantastic book, Harry Stafford, Manchester United's first Captain Marvel. It's one of the must-reads for any United fan. It's available on Amazon, from Empire Publications and on eBay. Thank you also to Gary James, whose knowledge on Manchester football history is unmatched. Here's a book out next year on football history in the city up until 1919, covering the founding of both United and City with original research and documents never found before. It too will be a must read. Thank you to those of you listeners who have left reviews on iTunes. Your kind words are hugely appreciated. And a final thank you to anyone who's still listening. If you enjoyed this first episode, check out the first episode on Louis Rocker. And if you've already heard that, then please leave us a review on iTunes and share this episode to Twitter, Facebook or whatever. We'll have one episode every month on one individual. And follow us on Twitter at, at UTD through time to keep updated. And we'll be publishing a few tales of United's history on our website at unitedthroughtime.com. Cheers for listening.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.